0: I don't know whether you saw the very interesting television documentary When Bankers Were Good this week. Uh, It's still uh, available on uh, iPlayer, don't don't miss it. Ian Hislop was at his acerbic, but also his um, stimulating best. He explored the world of, Um, seriously loaded Victorian bankers. And he demonstrated something which is in stark contrast to the financial sector workers of today, in fact. In Victorian England, the bankers, by and large, had a massive social conscience. Interestingly, the St Paul's Institute, associated with St Paul's Cathedral, um, just recently, finally uh, published its, its report, Value and Values on the Ethical State of City Financiers Today. And it revealed a body of people today living with deep contradictions. Like, like the rest of the country, they tended to believe that the most highly paid workers in the financial sector are paid too much, that the gap between rich and poor is too um, large, but they said that actually their personal remuneration was their primary motivation for working. They were, And they revealed themselves, uh, more than that, deeply resistant, 75% of them, I think, um, said that they would not listen to outside ethical voices. As the Church Times put it in its headline, we shan't listen to advice, say bankers. Hislop and the St. Paul's Institute together, I think, have put their finger on something which is much more widespread than just um, issues of uh, finance and banking. For most of my life um, it's been fashionable to use the, the word Victorian as a term of abuse. It conjures up uh, pompous, restrictive, moralistic fools desperately trying to stop everyone having fun whilst they themselves are mired in in, uh, in hypocrisy. Victorian values um, is a code word for the bad old days in many people's minds. But we don't actually realise that we are the victims of a massive propaganda campaign. It was led by a man called Lytton Strachey who in 1918... Published a very influential book entitled *Eminent Victorians*. It was actually a sustained character assassination of various heroes of the Victorian era, with a very clear, specific purpose in mind. Strachey belonged to a group called the Bloomsbury Set, who were systematically trying to overthrow the moral heritage of Britain, especially the sexual moral heritage, in in fact, in their case. And to do that, Lytton Strachey set out to make the Victorians look ridiculous. He was followed by uh, numerous others until by the second half of the 20th century, when I was growing up, everybody just thought the Victorians were bad hypocrites. And yet, actually, if you look at the Victorian world, you find that there was um, establishment of thousands upon thousands of schools and hospitals. For the first time in the history of Britain, um, education became um, close to universally available to young people. Almost all the, charit- the great charitable institutions of today were set up in the Victorian era from the NSPCC to the RSPCA and a thousand and one in, in between them. Not only was there, the, there a massive explosion of wealth in this country, which, uh, w- which was unprecedented, there was also an avalanche of philanthropy, as Ian Hislop uh, pointed out. And of course there was plenty of eccentricity, plenty of hypocrisy, plenty to mock and criticise as there is in every age. But it was not a dark age of repression. Uh, it, it was a m- much more close to a golden age of compassion and philanthropy as Ian has, Hislop has, uh, has, has tried to at least open us up to. And overwhelmingly, this is what I want you to realise, overwhelmingly, the philanthropic drive was fueled and guided by Christianity. They were far from all Christians themselves, but there was a mood in society which was profoundly shaped by, by Christian moral ideals. to those who say that philanthropy is actually a natural instinct amongst us, that um, uh, in the 19th century just incidentally happened to take on the clothes of Christianity, I I say look at today and ask yourself, read the St. Paul's Institute report. Does philanthropy naturally bubble up in the human soul? increasingly, it seems to me, it is becoming absolutely transparent in our world. It does not. And therefore, it is vitally important that those who believe that they have a moral compass whom God has given them, that they live it and they speak in favour of it. Now, the, the, the Occupy protest that, uh, that uh, um, camped outside St Paul's Cathedral in one sense highlighted an uncertainty in the heart of the church in the UK. On the one hand, the, the ancient moral principles of justice and fairness and compassion and equality Made uh, made Christians feel um, uh, uh, massively supportive of those protesters. On the other hand, the enormous forces of the world were all at play in in that situation, and so for a a while, St Paul's Cathedral couldn't make up its mind what to do. Thank God, it seems to be speaking more clearly today. We need. Christians who speak clearly into this world. And what is true now was true over 3,000 years ago in this book of Exodus. We've been following that, the story of the Exodus and we have gone, uh, for me at least, frustratingly fast, but we have seen how, how God came and rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and took them out on the road to freedom in the promised land. And we saw last week that God, uh, that he doesn't just tell us what God rescued us from, it tells us what God rescued his people for. They had a glorious purpose, a glorious purpose for them which is actually shared by his people today. They were saved to be royal priests, To live as human beings are supposed to live, ruling over and looking after this world properly, as people in the image of God. And they, they, they were called to be priests in particular, people who had a unique relationship with God so that they knew God and learned about God and what God demanded and, and and a mediating relationship to the world so that as people who knew God they could then then mediate God's presence and God's truth to the world around. That was Israel's calling. They were to be a kingdom of priests and that is last week we saw that is to be our calling, glorious calling to mediate the truth and the presence of God to this world. But what we didn't have a chance to, to focus on last week, and we must um, focus on this week, is that there was a key and important requirement. <coughs> Let me read chapter 19, verse 5 to you. We looked at it last week. Now, says God... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, and though all the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you notice how he prefaces it? If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Obedience, he says, is an intrinsic and inextricable uh, aspect of this mandate. You are called for a wonderful, glorious task, but it must be tied up with obedience. And so, it is on the back of that that we find um, a dying computer. <laughs> it's on the, on the back of that that we find actually then um, we find these ten commandments. So, as we read those Ten Commandments, I think you probably would agree with me. We could have spent the next ten weeks on them. We're just going to have a chance to look at them briefly um, this morning as we um, reflect on that clause. If you obey me fully, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests. They're not actually laws, these commandments, or at least not in the way <coughs> that, um, uh, that they are presented to us in um, the Old Testament. Did you see chapter, one, uh, chapter 20, verse 1? God spoke all these words. There are plenty of rules, plenty of laws that come up, um, explanations of how you should behave in, in particular situations. But these ten commandments... They're they're, they're not laws in quite the same way. They're much more fundamental principles. They are like the founding constitution of a nation, like like the American nation has, upon which then detailed laws are worked out. Um, In order to try and capture that, I've called it a charter. This is a charter for um, the the people of God. and uh, you'll see where I'm, I'm going from from that slide. It is a charter, first of all, for freedom. Notice, uh, notice how um, again how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, every all of these these commandments, this charter, stem from a prior. Work of God in setting them free and liberating them. We think so often that obedience to God is required before He will save us. And well, the Bible says the opposite. Actually, if you if you, if you try to make yourself sufficiently attractive to be saved by God through your own obedience, you will you will lose. You will fail now all the commandments of the bible come after god has by his prior action delivered us so they are not to make us saveable they are actually to help us to live in the freedom that god has won for us that was true for israel and that is true for us you could see you could see these commandments as sort of fences for freedom yeah You are free," says God. Now, here are the here are the limits beyond which you should not um, wander, or you will find yourself enslaved and entrapped again. They are a gift. They are a they they, they are a a wonderful set of set of directions to help us to live the freedom God has called us to do. Like like rules, like driving on the left hand side of the road preserve our freedom. If there were no rules of the road, you wouldn't have a gloriously free motoring public. You would have people constantly crashing. Well, so here. um, These are God's mandate to us to help us to preserve our freedom. Second thing I want you to notice about this, this charter that God gives us. It is, it is fundamentally a relational charter. That is, it is fundamentally about our relationships. And as such, it's, it's um, uh, often in stark contrast to other efforts that people make to uh, write Ten Commandments because it's not rare for the atheists of, uh, of this world to write their own uh, uh, their own Ten Commandments, there's, there's endless ones of them on the internet but most of them end up frankly pretty banal but there's a very interesting commandment that comes to take centre stage again and again and again it's in, Ante- in Anthony Grayling's version of the Humanist Bible it forms an addendum at uh, the end of his Ten Commandments he says, add to these ten injunctions this, O oh, friends, let us be true to ourselves. I, I presume he's well enough, well enough educated that he knows he's quoting from Shakespeare's Hamlet where um, Polonius addresses his son uh, Laertes with a whole series of uh, aphorisms that have gone into the, um, English language like never, neither a borrower nor a lender be and so on and, he, and then he ends in this way above all to thine own self be true the interesting thing about um, uh, Shakespeare's coining of that phrase is he seems quite clearly to have tended it to, uh, intended it to be um, a mockery of a commandment Polonius is a figure of fun in Hamlet he's an old fool and a, and a rather sinister one at that so uh, ironically this commandment that has now become one of the the great commandments of uh, uh, our humanist world came into the English language as a as a junk because you see if we just look into ourselves, if we think I just need to be true to myself, as we look in, we, we will see an extraordinary mixture, not, not just of goodness, but of shame and glory, of goodness and horrible sin. And we will be left left with an, with an interned Sense of morality that is that is utterly confused. What about myself? Should I be true to? And what the Ten Commandments you see does is it says no. You can look outside of yourself to find a standard to book, to live by. The very first of the Ten Commandments makes that point. Verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, he says, you shall have no other gods to my face. He's saying, in your mind's eye, then, there must, must, must not be the true God alongside the gods of money and sex and power or whatever else uh, people tend to uh, 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 be inclined to to worship it at any point. He says, no, you must fix the eyes of your heart on me and me alone with clear, unimpeded attention. On me, the perfect God. And there you will find something. Indeed, you will find someone on which to base your life. Outside of yourself and that confusion which is the human heart. You will find the the only God who is infinitely perfect, infinitely wonderful, infinitely attractive, infinitely glorious, infinitely holy, infinitely majestic. And that will give you a foundation upon which to build your life. To build it on ourselves. It's like, a, it's like a drowning person on the, on the river, thinking, well, if I just put my hand up there, uh, then I can grab my hand and get myself out. Madness. A drowning person needs another person to reach down and to say, here, I can pull you out of this mess." So, absolutely at the heart of the Ten Commandments is, is, is a call to develop a relationship. A relationship with the living God. This is what will maintain our freedom, establish our freedom, preserve our freedom. And then, as the Ten Commandments go through, we see a shift from the first half to the second half uh, uh, to another set of relationships. Not just a relationship with God, which is absolutely vital, but now a relationship with other people. The, 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 the last six of the Ten Commandments in particular... <coughs> are all about our relationships with people, about their their dignity, their life, do not murder, their, their well-being, let even slaves amongst you rest, their reputation, do not bear false testimony, Daily Mirror journalists, their possessions, do not steal, their role in society, honour your father and mother, do not commit adultery, we are to treasure human beings as of infinite value. Atheistic philosophies always dehumanise people. We shouldn't be surprised at that. From the extreme forms of Pol Pot's Cambodia and Stalin's Russia to the more subtle degradation of people that comes, comes from pure free market capitalism. If the infinite dignity of other people is not at the heart of our moral framework, then other people will be abused, degraded. God says treasure me more than anything else and treasure other people, other human beings because they bear my image and live with those uh, two-fold relationships at, at, at the centre of your heart and you will be free. More than that, you will be able to be that royal priesthood to the world. Third thing I want to uh, uh, pick up from this um, uh, little look at at the Ten Commandments, which is vitally important. that only starts to become clearer and clearer as the message of the Bible rolls on. This is a charter. Actually, that is only fulfilled in us. There seems to be an instinct about that um, uh, in uh, verse 18 and onwards. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in the smoke, they trembled with fear and stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak for us and, uh, and so on. There is something enormously disconcerting about the Ten Commandments. Indeed, in their, in their very structure, they are designed to leave us with a deep question. The first and the last commandments are massively important for our understanding of the whole. The first commandment um, was this, wasn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. You I, I'm to give my soul attention to God, I'm to have a, an undivided heart that it delights in God only? Isn't that impossible? The middle commandments move into into easier territory for a little while. We can comfort ourselves, probably most of us, that we haven't uh, murdered anyone. But then it comes back to this searching question of our hearts in verse seventeen: "You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything belongs that belongs to your neighbor. You neighbor, you shall not covet." Not, not just you shall not actually steal or, or whatever. You shall, shall not long for it. Is it am, I, am I not allowed a, ling, a, a, a lingering glance in the estate agent's window? Uh, is there no second glance to the top shelf of the, of the new agent? Is there, is there, is there no to be no daydreamer dream, dreaming about those bankers' salaries? No, says the commandment. And Jesus didn't help matters because he started applying those, those, those bookend principles that are there in the Ten Commandments to the middle ones. But at first sight looked a bit easier. Look at what he said in, the, uh, in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, which is, which is just a term of abuse, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, anger, dismissing a person as an idiot, those, those are breaches of the prohibition on murder, says Jesus. Because in your heart, you've done something very akin to murder. You have denigrated another human being and valued them as worthless. All the Ten Commandments, says the Bible, are actually about deep issues of the heart. And therefore, we, as we read them, should tremble like those ancient Israelites. Apostle Paul described the the, the paradoxical nature of the commandments in uh, in, in Romans chapter 7 just to just to to hammer it home he says there well let me read it and then explain it i would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. In other words, in other words, there was a kind of innocence that he enjoyed before it had been spelled out to him exactly the way that he should live and the things that he shouldn't do. But when, when those were spelled out to him, he found that the, that the commands themselves didn't give him the power to do the good. So rather paradoxically he found that, that that desires arose in him that he'd been barely aware of up to now as he reflected on the Ten Commandments. And he ended up in a worse place than he was before. Thank God for Jesus. You see that the, the, the implication that he's driving and driving and driving through the Bible is these, these commands are deep. You cannot keep them. And then Jesus does something absolutely foundational for us. He dies on the cross to pay for our failures in keeping these commandments. He, as God the Son, pays our penalty so that we do not need to fear judgment. Up until that moment, throughout the Old Testament period, frankly, Satan could stand before God and say, your people, they are condemned by Exodus 20, And God wouldn't really have an answer. But he knew he was going to have one. And now he has that answer. His answer is, no, they're not. I paid for their sin in my son Jesus. So now they do not need to be condemned. And let me say as well, thank God for his Holy Spirit because there is a second thing that God does um, in response to uh, to, to this observation in the Ten Commandments. He not only pays for our failures, he sends his Holy Spirit to begin that process of changing our hearts so that now Christians find themselves longing for God, enjoying God as Father, that they they can, they can say, God has done something in my heart. So that now, although it's far from perfect, I can read Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. And I can sense that that's beginning to really establish itself in my heart. He is the most precious thing. If you're a Christian here, you see, you can read the Ten Commandments in a way that no Israelite ever could. You can read these Ten Commandments and you can say, thank you that all my failures to follow those Ten Commandments are fully paid for in Jesus. And you can read these Ten Commandments and you can say, thank you God, that the very deepest demands of those commandments are starting to be worked out in my life as the Holy Spirit changes my heart. So, what does that mean for us? One thing I want to say to you is that as your pastor, and I don't think it's, this is unusual to this church, but as, as a pastor then, shall I say, I am deeply conscious that so many of us are not living in the freedom that this charter offers us. And for some, it's because you're not yet Christians. You know? Maybe you're not even accepting this moral code as a good one. Maybe you accept that it's a good one, but you think, oh, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I want to say, say to you, please open your eyes. We live in a world that has been experimenting long enough with other forms of the Ten Commandments and finding that actually things go backwards for long enough to realise that maybe these ancient words are for us. Put your faith in Jesus. Set out to follow him. But I I, want to say to, to the Christians here, that it is a sad reality of pastoral life that I spend far far too much of my time actually to be honest dealing with myself not living in the freedom that I could and definitely dealing with believers amongst you who are not. And in, in the end, I, I could read down through the Ten Commandments in interview after interview after interview that I have with people and at some point or other, they'd just say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that one. Or, I failed abjectly on that one. Now, what I want to say to you, if you've seen anything of the beauty and the glory of what it means to follow God, then set out afresh today to live by this freedom charter. All of your past sins are forgiven through Jesus. You do not need to wallow in condemnation. And the New Testament does not give us permission to say, I can't do that. Because God has sent his Holy Spirit into every single Christian and has given us, as uh, he puts it, everything we need for life and godliness. He's given you his church, other people here. I want to say to you, do not wallow in that sort of hinterland where you are not truly free. And I want to say to you as well, not only do you need that, but our world needs that. The story of the, the, the decline away from the wonderful ideals of the Victorians that Ian Hislop was just uh, touching on in that documentary. The story is, as much as anything, a story about a Christian church in this country that failed. and We must bear that responsibility. But the history of our nation is a history, in fact, of God's church being renewed again and again and again by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit through people who humbly live under it. And as God's church is renewed, this nation will be renewed. Our world can be renewed. This world needs your obedience. There are signs that once again People are re-examining the Victorian era and suddenly seeing it was Christianity that made such a positive difference in that world. They'll soon turn from that to looking at the church in the 20th century, 21st century. Along, for if they look here, they'll see what Moses describes. Out of all the nations you will be, says God, my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.